This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 4 In the last essay, we looked at John Dravakey's work on the meaning crisis and Jordan Peterson's hero-metamythology. Mainly we focused on how the crisis is caused and perpetuated by the loss of three orders, narrative, normative and nomological. We saw what was lost in the religious worldview and the failure of the scientific endeavour to offer any alternative. And we explored Brett Anderson's essay, Intimations of a New Worldview, offering a narrative and phenomenological view of John Verveke's relevance realisation, and how this is psychologically and biologically optimal for human beings, hence providing a teleology. The teleology, or end, was participation in the process of relevance realisation and creative adaptation, which was captured and communicated narratively by the hero meta-mythology detailed by Jordan Peterson in Maps of Meaning. In this essay, I will be arguing that we see this teleology in Plato's philosophy and the life of Socrates, and that Plato's philosophy develops even further the process and acts as an ontological grounding for a philosophy of self-development and self-transcendence, establishing some key ideas going forward and a dramatic map that we can follow through his myth of the cave. This return to ancient philosophy will also further our discussion on the import of virtue ethics and the centrality of attention in the project of progressing to the next attainable aspirational self. Socrates and a Philosophical Revolution Socrates, born 470 BC, is largely thought to be the founder of Western philosophy, so much so that every philosopher before him is considered a pre-Socratic. In episode 4 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, John Verveke shows how the time Socrates was born into was not so different from our own. These next chapters will heavily lean on John's work, so I recommend checking him out at the source also, and I put the link in the description. The main philosophical schools at this time were the natural philosophers and the sophists. The natural philosophers were proto-scientists, and their main interest was what the world was made of. In other words, they were concerned with facts and not transformations. As John points out, they didn't indicate how to become wise, overcome self-deception, or become a good person. The sophists, in contrast, were professional rhetoricians, specialists in crafting persuasive arguments to sway individuals and audiences to their wills. John argues that the sophists use bullshit to make things salient or relevant, that should not be salient or relevant, to influence people's behaviour. They had no ethics and didn't really care about reality, they just used the truth to persuade and manipulate people. Socrates was a radical departure from both these kinds of philosophy. Socrates split from the natural philosophers because he wanted wisdom and not just facts. He split from the sophist because he didn't want to bullshit people. Socrates wanted the truth and he was humble and aware of his own ignorance. In other words, he knew what was important. He knew himself and paid attention to the process of self-correction so he could transform himself to continue caring well and overcome self-deception. Socrates used this ability to help people give birth to their better selves. And because of this calling, he thought of himself as an intellectual midwife. Socrates, like the hero, 
occupied the border between order and chaos, and constantly questioned and pushed the boundaries of his thinking and others in the search for truth. This is why the Oracle of Delphi said he was the wisest of all men, because he was aware of his own ignorance, the capacity for self-deception and self-destruction. In other words, he knew that he knew nothing. As John says, wisdom in this case is about getting our truth machinery and relevance machinery together so we don't bullshit ourselves. Socrates took this practice so seriously of self-correction and transformation to connect to reality that he was willing to die for. His philosophical martyrdom was immortalised in his words at the trial, the unexamined life is not worth living. Plato and the First Psychological Theory Plato, born 428 or 424 BC, was a student of Socrates and a devout follower. Socrates also inspired many other philosophical schools like Stoicism and Epicureanism, but Plato really took on board Socrates' mission. John describes this mission in episode 5 as What we find salient or relevant is closely coupled to what we think is real or true, and hence what is transformative about us and what is true of the world should be held together. Sebastian Watzel made a similar point in our recent podcast that our reality is in large part determined by our patterns of attention and our patterns of attention are who we are. In Watzel's philosophy, attention is what organises the mind and prioritises certain stimuli over others and so agency begins in the small decisions of attending to one thing over another. What we prioritise or don't says a lot about our character. And so changing our character is a matter of changing our prioritization, in other words, our values. Socrates embodies this process for Plato as he prioritizes paying attention to his errors and transforming himself through self-correction into a greater connection with reality, the truth. In Plato's philosophy, he invented the first ever theory of the human psyche. In his psychological theory, he split the human psyche into three parts, a man, a monster and a lion. This is similar to Freud's tripart theory of the ego, the id, and the superego, if you know about that. For Plato, the monster, or appetite, makes things salient to us, food, sex, video games, and the man reflects on these desires and resists or does not. The third part, the lion, is motivated by honour and social gain, and is like the persona in Jungian psychoanalysis. John tells us that for Plato, the reason we do stupid things is because of inner conflict, because of these competing drives. For example, the man is always behind the monster, and so constantly playing catch-up to his appetites, as many of us know. John argues Plato's philosophy is about the work of ending your inner conflict and getting regulation between the inner selves, and that this is a precondition for getting into touch with reality. The inner conflict is an obstacle to the truth. This inner conflict is made up of self-deception and egotism, what John describes as the my-side bias. And so the process of overcoming the inner conflict involves getting outside oneself. In radical contrast to the scientific worldview and method, Plato suggests a personal transformation is necessary to see certain truths. And even more shockingly, Plato suggests that the motivating force for this transformation is, and must necessarily be, love. This comes together for us when we remember Iris Murdoch's definition of love as love is the extremely difficult realisation that something other than oneself is real. Overcoming our inner conflict For Plato, the process of organising the psyche occurs dramatically. 
The core of the idea is that the abstract man can represent future symbolic patterns to change behaviour now, and hence reason and philosophy can tame the monster and the lion because we can learn. For Plato, this process is self-reinforcing. As John describes, I gain more self-knowledge, I become less self-deceptive, and this lets me pick up on more patterns, which in turn I can use to tame the lion and monster more, and this creates inner harmony that helps me to see more reality. And hence, seeing more reality helps to gain more self-knowledge, and this is a positive feedback loop. Plato's theories are in concert with many others in the psychoanalytic tradition like Freud and Jung, and more modern integrated family systems theory or parts theory that start from the presupposition that we are not masters in our own house. This is a sharp contrast to the scientific worldview that considers the mind a solitary rational monad. The point of these theories is to show us how we have numerous subsystems which make us more like an individual than a single atomic self, and that to be a comprehensive and coordinated individual is a moral achievement, but by no means a given. The fact that organising the psyche occurs dramatically can be explained by conflicts of values. A story represents dramatically the process by which a conflict of values is resolved. One set of values represented by the protagonist and the other by the antagonist. Values is another word for goals. If you value truth, that creates certain goals for you, versus if you value control, that will supply other goals. And stories track how values transform with different characters representing different values in the story mind, as it's called. The reason Plato writes in dialogues and myths isn't because he's old and weird, but because his philosophy is centrally about this process of overcoming inner conflict and connecting to reality, which he also believes is an analogous to the ideal state, because the inner organisation leads to the outer organisation, which is a pretty radical proposal. Plato's Cave This entire process of overcoming self-deception and egocentrism to come closer to reality is what I would argue is taking place in the hero meta-mythology, and what is abstracted from the lives of great people into stories for intercultural generations to emulate. The stories are a dramatic representation of creative adaptation, which we explored in the last essay, and which involves self-transcendence to overcome illusion and discover what is most real, what is most significant. This entire philosophy of education as transformation is captured in Plato's myth of the cave, which John argues is a dramatic map out of the perennial problems. This is how John describes the cave in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. Here is the surface, pathway going down that leads into the inner cavern. There's a fire here. There's people chained to chairs, so all they can do is look at the back of the cave. Then there's other people walking in front of the fire, and it's casting shadows onto the cave because of the firelight, and they're hearing the echoes. And what Plato says is people take the shadows and the echoes to be the real things because they're chained. They're caught up. But what happens is an individual gets free. And what does that individual do? That individual turns and sees the fire. That allows them to realise that the shadows and the echoes aren't the real things. They're shadows and echoes. And what happens is the person's ability to notice the real patterns, as opposed to the merely correlational patterns, is changed. They become less self-deceptive. People start to see, they start to realise, oh, these are what real patterns feel like, as opposed to what I thought was real. You get the taste for reality developing, and that taste means they start to look around and explore. And then they realise there's a path, there's light coming through it, and then they start a journey upward, 
Now notice how this journey works. When they take a step forward, they're blinded by the light and they have to wait. They have to wait for their eyes to adjust. The self has to be transformed. And then once the eyes have adjusted, they can see how to go and then they take another step and then they're blinded again. And there's this slow process and Plato kept talking about it. At various stages, they have to stop because they're blinded and then they adjust and then they gain the ability to see where they couldn't see before. It's this participatory transformation I talked about. And eventually they come up here and they look around. And what are they looking for? They want to see the source of the real light. The light that's allowing them to pick up on the real patterns. Where is this light that shows the reality of things coming from? Not only is it showing the reality of things, this light is the source of the life of things. Whereas this source of understanding and light. And they look around and of course they glimpse, because they can't stare directly at it, the sun. And it's overwhelming. It's beyond their comprehension. But they see it and it fills them with a kind of awe. And of course what they do is, they go back down into the tunnel rapidly, and they get here, and they try to tell their fellow prisoners what they saw, but of course they're stumbling around because their eyes don't work anymore in that darkness, and they're saying things that make absolutely no sense to these people. And so they ridicule them, and if they could, they would kill that individual. And of course this is an allusion to Socrates. First of all, notice that contrary to what people think, enlightenment is not just an Eastern idea. This myth of the cave is a myth of enlightenment of coming into the light. It's a myth of self-transcendence and self-transformation. It's a myth of coming, and I mean a myth, in the sense that we've been talking about. It's a parable of coming into greater and greater contact with reality. That was from episode 5 of the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. So, as the story, the journey out of the cave seems pretty benign, but if we put ourselves in the shoes of the philosopher, it would involve the complete destruction of our world. Separation from others, loneliness, fear, uncertainty, facing death of sorts, awe, transcendence, and then a heroic return to try and probably fail to communicate that experience to others. Philosophy isn't for the faint of heart, and originally represented a heroic and redemptive mode of being, and not just abstract arguments. We see in the myth of the cave deep alignments with other archetypical stories here, like the Buddha reaching enlightenment, but not staying in nirvana and returning to help others as the Bodhisattva, Jesus facing the cross and death despite being the Son of God. Clearly there are some universal themes at play. Escaping from the cave. The cave is the standard lot of evolved animals called human beings. A perceptual and cognitive machinery, so necessary for keeping us alive so we can reproduce and adapt, also makes us perennially self-deceptive and self-destructive. The solution suggested by Plato and Socrates is to focus on practices of self-correction, paying attention to one's errors and hence transformation, taking on new and appropriate values, inspired by love of reality and truth. John says profound self-correction is transformation. People experience these kind of radical transformations on psychedelics all the time. A transcendent experience of awe and wonder blows apart the shaky foundations of your value system with thundering glory. In other words, an experience of the truly awe-inspiring puts things in perspective. An experience like that forces a re-evaluation of the worth of everything else, for better or for worse. Oftentimes with psychedelics, though, they are done without any philosophical or spiritual tradition to contextualise the relevance of the experience. And so while some things might change, there is a serious downside. 
This awe-inspiring experience of reality outside the cave is what Plato calls the good. The good is represented by the sun because you can't look directly at it, but by its light we see everything else. Like light, the sun, the good is not an object of sight, but that by which we see. Connecting the good and God is not a massive leap, and a huge amount of Plato's philosophy was integrated into Christianity through Neoplatonism. There is a parallel here with Moses' experience of the burning bush, when he cannot look at God, but can only look upon his back. Verveke describes the good as the continually held promise of the wedding of intelligibility and reality, and that the scientific worldview actually presupposes the good, because if reality was not intelligible, how could we do empirical science? This is the same argument D.C. Schindler makes in Plato's critique of impure reason. He asks, what is the reason for reason? How can we make a rational argument for rationality that doesn't presuppose the validity of rationality in the first place? We can't, and Plato doesn't make that case because what justifies rationality is the unhypothetical first principle, the good. And therefore, seeing the good requires a leap of reason. We can't just reach it with our abstract inferential minds. This is where love comes in and takes on such a central role. We mentioned earlier Iris Murdoch's quote that connects love and overcoming self-deception to connect to reality, and this is a very platonic idea. In fact, philosopher comes from the Greek word philosophia, the lover of wisdom. So love is the primary motivational force. This love takes you beyond your current knowledge structure to the experience of the intelligibility of reality and through the hardships of the transformative experience. Iris Murdoch draws the connection between virtue and love and connecting to reality and the sovereignty of the good. She says, Virtue is a good habit and dutiful action, but the background condition of such habit and such action in human beings is a just mode of vision and a good quality of consciousness. It is as a task to come and see the world as it is. A philosophy which leaves duty without a context and exalts the idea of freedom and power as a separate and top-level value ignores this task and obscures the relationship between virtue and reality. For Plato, this philosophical love is embodied by the character of Socrates, and John makes the point that this type of agapic love was taken up into Christianity and becomes God's love for humanity, and in some sense what God is. God is love, whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. John 4.16 Agape is a type of love for growth, becoming, loving someone into fulfilling their potential and becoming a human being or becoming a person. I think beyond the narrative, Plato's love for Socrates also embodies this type of love. Socrates spent his time using his transformation to help others to better themselves. He exemplified agapic love and Plato, deeply inspired by that love, resurrected his mentor with no short of loving creative work in his life so Socrates could go on and do the same for generation after generation. This is the mythological motif of resurrecting your father from the belly of a whale, which is a profound act of love and one which we will discuss later on in this series. If we can imagine the character in the cave, could we imagine what it would be like to not know about the sun, to have no experience of such a thing? Surely there would be no way of conceptualizing it. Maybe once we see the fire, then we can gain some sort of idea. But until then, what a mystery it would be. Plato's argument is that we are all in the same state all the time. We cannot infer what we truly don't know, have no experience of, and so we must go on a pilgrimage to reality, a hero's journey of heroic effort to insight. 
which is noesis in ancient Greek, the act or result of understanding the inner nature of things or of seeing intuitively. This process of self-transcendence, ending the inner conflict, overcoming self-deception and egocentrism, is necessary to see the truth that reorganizes our priorities into proper order and that this is the fulfillment of our potential. Livu Petru talks about this participatory ideal for the Orthodox Christian. Orthodox life is the knowledge of God, which involves knowledge of the self, but not purely epistemological, based on the intellect, but more knowledge via participation in God, when the Christian, oriented towards that knowledge, progresses in virtue, perfection, and the knowledge of God, and ultimately accomplishes the main purpose of his life, which is becoming godlike. From the beginning we shall emphasise the fact that God did not want to create man only as a being gifted with special distinctive qualities, but wanted to create him to become a God through divine grace. Being created in the image of God, man is called to work and gain union with God, which is becoming God-like. As I will argue later, the pursuit of the experience of the transcendent good acts as a goal which organises and coordinates our competing subsystems, which is what St. Augustine argues for in his Confessions, and that this is the great discovery of monotheism. Under polytheism, inner conflict is the norm, and the inner harmony is actually the oddity. This is why transcendent religious experience on magic mushrooms or some other psychedelic or religious conversion is the most effective treatment for addiction, which is a profound issue with one's prioritization, where one salient good becomes salient above all others. The experience of what lies beyond our current conceptualizations of reality is deeply transformative, but also dangerous. It opens the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley argued. However, without a guiding tradition and practices, this can do damage as well as good. For Plato, Heidegger argues that truth is aletheia, or disclosure, versus a scientific correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth states that the truth or falsity of a statement is determined only by how it relates to the world and whether it actually describes that world. John argues we know the truth relative to illusion. In other words, we know the cave was an illusion by the experience of the good. Truth and real are comparative terms, like tall and small, old and young. That's why when someone says stupid things like reality is an illusion, they are basically saying tall is small. They are not. One only makes sense of the other. We know illusion by pointing out reality, and vice versa. Leaving the cave gives us a new frame of reference for reality, and so we can point out and say that the experience of the good is more real than the cave. The experience of the good is an experience of a deep nomological order, a connection between reason and reality, and the experience of the continually held promise of the intelligibility of reality. The alternative to this experience is the modern nihilistic disconnection, an alienation from anything that is real. The mind trapped inside its head, where perceptions are illusions and only thoughts are real, like Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. This is the result of a world without the good, where no one can guarantee the intelligibility of reality, and it's clear that Descartes was searching for certainty, and of course he tried to find it within his own head. John argues that we have been stuck in this propositional tyranny for quite some time, and Brett makes the point also 
that this is down to Newtonian physics inappropriately preferencing space and time over biological complexity. Simply because a space rock is bigger and older does not make it more significant than a much more complex, evolved being. A new scientific worldview is emerging that will hopefully right the wrongs of the old. But the point is, as individuals, we are always stuck in the cave. And so genuine knowledge is hard to come by, and it requires a deep personal transformation to get there. So how can we get back to transforming ourselves? How can we find the lost technologies of self-transformation? Religions and ancient philosophies weren't just systems of thought, but were also engines of transformation. And this is a valid metric to judge them on. The scientific method cannot get us out of self-deception and egocentrism. So we have a deep need to reinterpret the ancient engines of transformation for our modern individual lives. Conclusion We've taken a deep dive into Socrates and Platonic philosophy and identified the virtues of Socrates in paying attention to one's errors and self-correction and self-transforming into deeper connection with reality. In Plato's philosophy, we have to overcome inner conflict, competing values, self-deception and egocentrism to get to reality and the truth, and that this is a process motivated by a loving reason and ultimately aimed at wisdom, getting truth and relevance machinery in order so we minimise bullshitting ourselves. We highlight the story of the cave as presenting a dramatic map of this process and how difficult and truly terrible that process could be to undertake but that it is truly a redemptive way of being and shares many commonalities with other world religions and philosophies. When we next return, which will be after the Christmas break, we're going to look at the normative order and operationalizing Plato's worldview through his own pupil, Aristotle, the later Neoplatonist Plotinus, and the therapeutics of the Stoics, which aimed at becoming like Socrates, to show how we as individuals can begin to partake in this ancient and meaningful process.